Hi, everyone. It's Molly Luby here at Chapel Hill Public Library. And here's something you probably already know. On August 20th, 2018, student activists at UNC tore down Silent Sam. Just a few months later, in February, some of those same activists actually installed two of their own historical markers, one in downtown Chapel Hill, right on Franklin Street, and one on campus. We install these monuments as an act of transfiguration. It is not too late to do what those before us would not or could not do. It is not too late for a moral awakening and a true reckoning with the past. The future we want will not come about unless we fight for it. Within days, both markers were gone. But then, a couple of weeks later, Dr. Reginald Hildebrand spoke at a site dedication for yet another historical marker. In the future, when your children ask what these stones mean to you, come on here. Yeah. You will tell them, these stones will always remind the people of Israel of what happened here. In reference to the historical marker that we will place at the site of the old colonial drugstore, what will we tell our children? And that's where our podcast begins. In this, our first season, we want to uncover untold community stories around the monuments and markers of Chapel Hill. To do this, I've enlisted my dear friend, Danita Mason-Hogans, to co-host this season. She also happens to be a brilliant community historian. Hey, Danita. Hey, Molly. So I know you've got a long family history in Chapel Hill. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. I'm from Chapel Hill, of course, from seven generations on both sides of my family. And I'm so proud to be from Chapel Hill. I love Chapel Hill. I love being a daughter of the South. And I love being a part of the family and families who, with their labor, built UNC. Local families like mine have been here throughout the university's history, and we were a part of that history, and we are still here. And that is why I'm so grateful to have you here in the studio, helping guide us as we dive into the stories of Chapel Hill's community history. And so, are you ready to get started? Let's have that talk. I'm ready. Okay. This is Recollecting Chapel Hill. History from the inside out and bottom up. My Chapel Hill looked very different from what I saw in the mainstream or in publications that supposedly represented my town. One person's interpretation of the past might differ from another person's interpretation of the past. And we do fight over memory all the time. If a bridge chooses sides, it's no longer a bridge. The old post office on Franklin Street faces McCorkle Place, that vast green lawn at the heart of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill where for generations, students and the community who served them 
were watched over by a silent sentinel. The space once occupied by Silent Sam is just visible from the concrete plaza square in front of the post office building. And it's here that our story begins. This plaza square. Regular hang of the so-called post office kids in the 1990s. Site of public protests and rallies since the 1960s. Community gathering spot for peace vigils, press conferences, and parties. Occupy has the values and the message and the system of government, and we have changed the terms of debate. So how did this place become the place for the people of Chapel Hill to test the limits of free speech and our right to assemble? That's what we're going to explore in our first episode, Peace and Justice Plaza. The hair stood up on my on the back of my neck when I read the, you know, the article of the people fasting during Holy Week. And I said, you know what? I was there. I'm Jerry Neville. I uh, grew up in Chapel Hill, 64 years old, and I worked for the town of Chapel Hill. I didn't have, at that time, at that age, didn't have very much contact with white people. You know, we, didn't, we didn't start our walking downtown until a few years after that. Chapel Hill before 1964 was like most Southern communities, segregated. So what I remember hearing was that there was a line that you went on Franklin Street and you could only go a certain distance and after a certain time you had to be back home. We were taught our limits and how far we could go and the expectation of where they need us to be. One, because of safety, our safety. And Jerry grew up the youngest of seven siblings, all of whom went to jail in the 1960s for acts of civil disobedience. He was a true child of the movement. (laughs) Everybody loves Jerry Neville. He is so cool. (laughs) And Jerry was a member of the Mayor's Civil Rights Task Force. And he knows a lot about Chapel Hill history. And I mean, he has been collecting history for decades. And he has some amazing photographs, too. His whole family is rooted in social justice in Chapel Hill. And Jerry has some great stories. So my friend Jojo Webb, we, uh, we were partners in crime. <laughs> and so one of the things that, that we, we always did was, uh, was go visit his mother who cooked at the Cal Fi Fraternity. Cal Fi Fraternity is located on the corner of Columbia and Macaulay Street. 
Uh, I'll never forget that building. It's been a lot of a lot of time there. Uh, that was always exciting to, to to be able to go with him to, to visit his mother because she would feed us pretty well. JoJo's mother, Miss Goldie, she always had a post office box, which we we always had mail come to our house. My parents never had a post office box, but she she always had a post office box, and and I remember going. Jojo and his mom, you know, to get the mail from their, their box, you know, which I thought was pretty cool, but, you know, but we, we never had that. I remember having the same feeling when I was a kid because the little key. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And yeah, then you could knob, look back there uh-huh, and yeah. there's people back there. Yeah. I had, uh, we were out of school Good Friday. Of course, you know, uh, Joe had to go to visit with his mom. When we got there, she said, uh, I want you guys to do me a favor. I want you to take this ice up to the post office. Uh, there's some people up there fasting for civil rights. And so we, we didn't hesitate. Took the ice. You know, we had baskets on our bicycles because we both had carried newspapers, you know, as a you know, summer job. And so we uh, took, our, took the ice to, uh, up to the post office. When I when I, we arrived on our bikes, they were they were they were laying on blankets. Jerry Neville <laughs> on his bike. What was going on then? Well, in March 1964, a small group of young people who were leading the act of protest decided to take public action to support the more than 1,500 people who were still in jail as a result of the civil rights protests. And I wanted to show you this letter um, from 1964. It's titled Holy Week Fast at the top of the page. And it talks about all of the reasons why the writers decided to fast in the week leading up to Easter that year. There's a call to the community to end the segregated Jim Crow business practices of many Chapel Hill merchants. And the letter is signed. Well, here, can you read the names of the people who signed it? Sure. That's John Dunn. Lavert Taylor, Patrick Cusack, and James T. Fashi. <laughs> yeah, we call him T.T. Fashi. And you can catch James T.T. Fashi at McDonald's just about any morning, cutting it up and laughing and talking and sharing things with his friends. But for me, T.T. Fashi, if there had to be one example of someone who went through a lot with the civil rights movement and his tenacity, it would be James T.T. Fashi and his brother Braxton Fashi, who really helped to usher in a new dynamic of political power in Chapel Hill. So the Fashi family is really, really rooted in Southern resistance of oppression. And here I'm going to play a story that comes to us from our friends over at WUNC, um, where James Fushi recounts his experience of the Holy Week fast. My name is James Fashi. Well, we decided we were going to have a hunger strike on front of the post office on Franklin Street. It was public ground. That's why we picked that spot, because we knew they'd have a hard time removing us, because it's owned by the post office, not by the town of Chapel Hill. We got sleeping blankets, and that's where we bogged down there. 24 hours around the clock every day. After a couple of days, you couldn't eat nothing no way. Because your body ain't got adjusted to not eating. That last two or three days, 
feel like I was burning up on the inside. So I know it was a, you know, that was awesome. Breathing also make you weak. I'm talking about real weak. But I just refused to leave. Mm. <laughs> it took a long time to go away. I would go on the track with change some of the minds and some of the minds of the merchants. Get them to thinking that a plate of food and the color of your skin shouldn't make that much difference. Personally, I just couldn't understand it. I still don't understand it this day. I have some of the time that I want to quit. But I said, said to myself, I said, no, mm -mm, I can't. It just, um, it just ain't right and I ain't gonna quit. Giving up is, is not an option. Someone or somebody <laughs> had to keep the ball going. Thanks to WUNC and James Fushi for letting us share that story. Uh, so James T.T. Fushi was the only native Chapel Hillian to participate in the hunger strike. He was there with other activists, some of whom were white. Right. And in 1964, the white establishment in Chapel Hill wasn't too happy about a particular young white man, Pat Cusack. Pat was originally from Alabama and he was the great-grandson of a slave owner and Klansman. He was also one of the leaders of the civil rights movement in Chapel Hill, and Pat died in 2004, having devoted his whole life to social justice and community organizing. And Pat shared his experiences of the movement in Chapel Hill in a long, fascinating oral history interview that you can find in the Southern Oral History Program archives at UNC, We'll also link to it in our show notes. Here he talks about the response from the Ku Klux Klan to the Holy Week fast. We were going to die right there on Franklin Street. In front of the post yeah. office. Yes, yes, Lord. Uh, and then that's when they had the, uh, the all the clans gathered from uh, around the south that right. Saturday night. And then Chief Blake told me the next day, uh, he said, "Do you know?" He said, "There were." He said, "Clavern Number Nine saved your life. That was the Orange County Clavern." And he said, because they had, he had infiltrated, and he said they had decided they were going to kill y'all. They were going to come in with a drum of sulfuric acid. And he said, the local clavering saved your life by saying, uh, you know, all you boys will go home, and we're the ones that are going to bear the brunt of it. So self-determination within the Klan. Uh, but... Um, uh, I told him, I said, Chief, I'm really glad you didn't tell us that last night. I'd have been I'm scared to. It's an open violation of the postal regulation for anyone to lotter on postal property, and yet your postmaster right here in this city allows this group of people to lay down, sit down all over the steps of your post office department here. The people of this city should move them. If they can't do it, ladies and gentlemen, they are not worthy of being called white people. The Klan drove by, but that was uh, that was it. And as I said, I didn't know about the acid. Thank yeah. goodness to the next yes. thing, because I, I'm basically a, a chicken-hearted throughout all of this, and I don't know, and uh, you know, I don't need any. Uh, still am. Uh, 
But it was interesting the first time I went back to walk past that patch of grass and to go walk past the colonial drugstore and say, I still couldn't go in there because I could see the owner still in there. He was perhaps the most mm -hmm. recalcitrant. We'd had a big picket line there. And, uh, and Franklin Street, Lord, it looked almost the same. So Pat Cusack made the comment that nothing changed as a result of their strike. And when change finally came, it wasn't because Chapel Hill was ahead of the curve or more liberal than other places in the South. Yeah, that's right. It happened when the federal government finally passed the Civil Rights Act in the summer of 1964. Chapel Hill was definitely not ahead on this one. You know, Molly, when I look at these old photographs of Pat Cusack and T.T. Fashi when they were doing the hunger strike, it's really remarkable to me to witness this dynamic of you know, young white students bonding with young black local people with the hopes of a better future for Chapel Hill. And whether people are protesting or whether people are talking on Franklin Street, a lot of times it's the ideals that they're holding up as a vision for what Chapel Hill should be and could be potentially. So I think it's pretty iconic. And so this is where the Holy Week fast happened, here in front of the old post office. And for years it was known as the square in front of the downtown post office on Franklin Street where we always have rallies and community events. Yeah, and now it's called the Peace and Justice Plaza. And there's a granite marker there with the names of people who work for the principles of peace and justice in Chapel Hill. And that's where our story picks up next time on Recollecting Chapel Hill. We're going to fast forward 55 years from 1964's hunger strike at the old post office to Peace and Justice Plaza in the summer of 2019. Yes, two new names were added to the granite marker, and we'll tell you why. Yeah, and they're good ones. <laughs> It truly takes a village to raise a podcast, but especially of a history podcast produced by a bunch of librarians with basically no experience. And so we owe great heaps of gratitude to far too many names to list here. Find our full credits as well as more on all of the history work we are doing at Chapel Hill Public Library online at chapelhillhistory.org slash podcast. One special shout out this week, though to one of our favorite people, Jerry Neville, whose story of riding his bicycle to the old post office on Franklin Street one Friday morning in 1964 inspired this episode. This week's outro song, Stagger Lee by Lloyd Price, also comes from Jerry. It's one of many you can listen to on our first Spotify playlist, Jerry Neville's Essential Soundtrack of the 1960s. The story of Stag Lee is based on a real murder that occurred in July 1895 in St. Louis, Missouri. Find more about that as well as Jerry's full Spotify playlist in our show notes at chapelhillhistory.org slash podcast. Recollecting Chapel Hill is brought to you by Chapel Hill Public Library, a department of the town of Chapel Hill. I'm Danita. And I'm Molly. And, and this, this is Recollecting, Recollecting Chapel, Chapel Hill. Hill. Thanks for listening, y'all.